Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Amplify Her podcast. I'm your host, Christina Singh, and I am so freaking excited to bring you this interview today. I had such a wonderful conversation with Antonella Aguilera Ruiz, and this episode is all about burnout and resilience. We really go into what exactly is burnout, what exactly is resilience, and the current mental health crisis, to be honest, that so many people are facing in this country right now. We talk in particular about women and burnout. This was such an amazing episode because I learned so much. I was able to ask Antonella clarifying questions and then learn about the practices that she has in her life that she puts into place, not only for herself, but for her clients. Um, So it was really wonderful to learn about her and her journey. For reference, um, Antonella is a naturopathic doctor, and she uh, is the founder of Wild Lemon Health, a virtual clinic specializing in whole body mental health. Um, And she also is the co-founder of Peace of Mind, aka Palm. Um, And Palm is such an incredible uh, organization and company. Their mission is to inspire and motivate people to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. And it says in here that, you know, Dr. Antonella and her co-founder, Eris, I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, (laughs) embarked on a mental wellness journey after overcoming their own physical and mental health challenges. And we dive into that process and we dive into the things that Antonella has learned. Um, she, I want to give you some of her, you know, obviously her stats. Um, she graduated magna cum laude at Santa Clara University and earned her naturopathic doctorate from the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. You can, I'm going to leave her website and her handles, her social handles in the description for this so you can go and follow her and work with her. Um, I do want to say if you're looking for one-on-one work, uh, she primarily works with folks in California and Oregon, um, but the peace of mind uh, program and and company that she and her partner started, um, they work with people all around the country. And that program that we talk about is really a approaching burnout and um, building resilience in the workplace, because we talk about how burnout is really something that is uh, specific to the workplace. We talk about what exactly building resilience can do and the systemic changes that really need to happen in the workplace to avoid burnout and to avoid creating a culture that um, is supporting burnout and making it much worse. We also also talk about how burnout is very much linked to trauma. It is a form of trauma. So if this is sounding like something you might need just sit back and enjoy this episode with Antonella. Thank you for being here. And I can't wait for you to hear this wonderful interview. Antonella, welcome to the show. I am so thrilled to have you and to chat with you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So we were introduced to each other by Santa and Mm -hmm. um, I was really excited to be introduced to you because your um, business is all about resilience in the workplace, combating burnout, and creating more balance, correct? Absolutely, yes. 
Amazing. So I was, I want to talk about that, mm-hmm. um, but I want to get to know you a bit more and, and kind of lead my listeners down the journey of how you got to where you are and why you started this company and why you are doing this work. Mm-hmm. So I know you're in California. Yep. Um, so you grew up there, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in rural Northern California. Um, and have like always had ties to this place. Um, I moved to Portland for naturopathic school and I was there for 11 years. And then that eventually pulled me back right back to where I started almost. Oh my gosh. So you have grown up in the same space for the majority of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, is your family all nearby? And, and was, has that been really grounding for you? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a big reason for coming back. So, um, my family is nearby my, I think this is probably very important to the story. My parents aren't from, uh, California. They're actually from Colombia, And so it's, um, often when I share that with people, they're like, how did two Colombians land in a place named rescue this like tiny little town in Northern California? Um, and so my brother and I grew up here and, yeah. And they've, they've been here now for more than 35 years. I, we moved here when I was two and then my brother is seven years younger than I am. So wow. yeah, they are an incredibly grounding force. And I got that feeling once I was in Portland, like the time away had sort of gotten, like I was ready to go back and have that familial support. And I think coming from a close knit Latino family, that was always really important to me. Oh, that's really beautiful. So take me back. What was a little Antonella like? So what were you like when you were young? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Cause I feel like I'm, I see this through the lens of my mom telling me stories, right? Um, right. Like part of it is like, I think the things I remember, but then my mom will make these comments, like just a few weeks ago, we were talking about um, like learning to talk and like being able to speak. And she was like, I don't know, you were like, you just like started speaking really easily, but it wasn't so much that like you spoke well for your age. It was like the things that you talked about, like you just like had these like adult conversations with people. And so (laughs) I, I do remember that from like being little that I feel like I always had an equal um, relationship with my parents. Like they never like talked down to me or Like, and so it's interesting to hear my mom share that where she was like, yeah, I feel like you just started talking and it's probably like how you talk now. Um, I think little me um, was much more outgoing and confident. I feel like I've grown into, I've been like having to grow back into that confidence. Like the little girl my mom describes is like, she would talk to everybody. She wasn't shy very opinionated. I feel like that might have been true from the very beginning and <laughs> continues to be true. Um, and like really curious, um, but also really sensitive. And a lot of that is still true. And I think I'm trying to regain that confidence that like the five-year-old me was just like, so outgoing and gregarious in that regard. Oh, that's really beautiful. And I feel like this is often the narrative with women in when we're very young and assertive and then kind of go through things that maybe we have to reclaim that younger, mm-hmm. uh, that younger viewpoint, confidence, courage. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. Now, what led you to the journey of, you know, starting this company and, and focusing on the workplace and mm-hmm. resilience in the workplace and peace of mind? Yeah. So I think it probably the stepping stone to that is 
mental health. And so I think that even takes us back before um, that there was this like fork in the road when I was in college where I had been pre-med. I was, I went to school in the Silicon Valley. I was like, I want to go to Stanford or like another big med school in California. And that was like the thing that I wanted to do. And then I got really sick, um, which essentially looking back now, that was probably my first experience of burnout. Um, like when I look at the definition now, and I look at myself at 17, I was coming off of like three years of five hours of sleep doing two sports competitively, graduating valedictorian, right? Like that all looked really good on paper, but it was tiring and I was exhausted by the time I got to my undergrad. Um, so that experience of being sick and really not finding answers in that pre-med or conventional medicine track caused me to sort of go backwards and say like, I want to be in healing and in medicine, but I want to be able to address people as whole human beings and really look at those root causes of things. So there was this pause where I had to say no to that conventional medical track and then figure out what this other view, what this other career might look like. That took me through thinking I would become a chef, but eventually I decided to go to naturopathic medical school. And to fast forward to the mental health piece, when I graduated, I ended up in a psychiatrist in a clinical psychologist's office. So I quickly was exposed to a lot of people who were suffering with mental health challenges. And so that has really become the focus point of my own practice and eventually what jumped to workplace and burnout and resilience. And I sometimes, I think more recently have described it, like I've sat across so many women who are burnt out, totally tired, disconnected and we go through their schedule and they tell me about their work and I often think the root cause or one of those pieces here is if we could actually change the way you work right like if I could go to your employer and we could figure out what is a more sustaining schedule work environment operational environment for you we would be so much more successful on this whole burnout trajectory if that in resilience was really the focus at the, at the workplace. So I think that's what started to bridge that. Like I've been deeply interested in what creates mental resilience in my own private practice. And then thinking we spend so many hours at work and work can be such an obstacle to people feeling ultimately well, but it takes up such large pieces of our lives as well. Oh my gosh. Yes. I feel like there's so many juicy nuggets of info I want to get into <laughs> with you. So we want to go back and talk about landing, landing in that office that you mentioned, mm -hmm. what was that path? And, and like, how did that come about? And what were you observing? I know you touched on it, but what were you observing that made you really um, step into your role? Because I'm always curious about the decisions people make where they make the choice and then they take the action. Yeah. So I'm really curious about that journey. Yeah. So in so many ways, that's such an interesting question to reflect back on like how I landed there. So I graduated from school in Portland and then had sort of like a disastrous life event, like a really significant broke breakup. Like I was set to move to San Diego, the breakup happened. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to San Diego, but I've rented out my apartment. I've run out of money. I'm going back home to California. Wow. Um, 
And so I sort of landed in the next city, like the biggest city near me was Sacramento. And so I started just like poking around and figuring out like I need to get an office. Um, and I forget where, I feel like LinkedIn was probably early then, but maybe it was on LinkedIn that I started seeing that there was like a holistic psychiatrist. There was a psychologist who did mindfulness. Um, and I just like cold emailed them and was like, Hey, I'm a new practitioner. Could I like maybe figure out if I can like rent a space from you? Or do you have any guidance? I like had no idea how to run a business or a practice, right? It was like, let's train you <laughs> as this clinician and then throw you out into the world. And I'm like, what do I do? Who do I ask? Where do I start? So through those connections, I ended up renting one day a month from the psychiatrist. He was so generous and incredibly kind and I now look back of like the psychiatrist who was like, yes, I think what you're doing is really cool and could compliment the people that I work with and so open-minded. And then he referred me to other people and I started asking, and then I rented space from this other clinical psychologist for um, a day a month. But I think what I started to learn there was that people were really frustrated with how their mental health was being handled. And there's a really particular case that's um it like makes me emotional to think about because I think it was so significant in the formation of everything else and so this woman came to see me and she eventually committed suicide so right I'm like I've been a practitioner maybe for two or three years at this point and I get that email that just like <sighs> breaks your heart like just makes it stop and I remember like when I look back at her like she was just such an instrumental person in showing me like how poorly her care had been handled, right? She had been thrown prescriptions. She had been told, like she had been thrown on another prescription and then it had been pulled off. Then she had been given another benzodiazepine prescription and then her doctor went on vacation and then she abruptly stopped it. And then we get this email with like the most heart-wrenching news that she had taken her own life. And I remember the frustration as I had tried to work with her that was like, if I had known you, 20 years ago, and we could have had a very complete conversation around your whole health, we would not be where we are today. And I think it wouldn't have ended in that tragic end. And so she was so instrumental that I was like, I think we just need to think about mental health and mental well-being and that whole idea of like whole body mental health. There's such an opportunity here and how we do this care and care for people. And it was really in that office. And it was really through that very painful experience with mm -hmm. her um, that I came to that. Wow. Thank you for sharing. So building on that, what were the actions that you then took to change your approach? Because I'm always very curious about, you know, what are the things that people are actively doing when they make those decisions? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, this one just grew it like slowly grew and blossomed. But that being said, I think it just pushed my curiosity and my interest to say, what are all the other things that can help? And so I went and studied mindful self-compassion. I did, um, I sort of put myself through all of that research and all of that coursework. I started um, figuring out this thing called nutritional psychiatry. Like I always had this inkling that food really mattered, but then I like happened upon this research and I was like, oh my gosh, it really does matter. And we're starting to gain momentum of how this is connected to our mental well-being. Um, so for me, I'm such like 
a nerdy like learner in that way <laughs> that I think it really caused me to just go down all of these avenues. Like what does somatic therapy look like? What do we like when we say mind body, what does that mean? When we say like mind body and trauma work. So it was a lot of immersion and what at that time, like now it doesn't seem so out of the ordinary that we would bring like meditation, sleep, food, connection to society and like our social connections together. But at the very beginning, I was like, I was like, I'm this person who likes meditation in my body. I'm like studying food. I'm studying the gut brain connection. How is this ever going to like all be interrelated? So it took me down lots of paths of just like deep investigation into a lot, a lot of topics that I could see in my patients were at play and trying to piece how that worked together and oh, learning yeah. to speak to it. And I feel like I'm, I'm now doing that better, but it's been like a years long process to sort of yeah. walk myself into that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that you would immerse yourself. And it seems like from our very brief time together right now mm-hmm. that you're very much a learner and you want to um, adapt and improve uh, upon your practice and, and the way that you um, help others. Mm-hmm. When did you start to notice those changes in your clients when you were integrating more and more things? And because I think there is such a beauty in learning something, implementing it and seeing a change and your motivation and that, um, you know, that devastating moment leading to that is, is beautiful that you can create change. So when did you start to see those small moments of change happening in your practice with your clients? Yeah. I mean, I think what's really nice about private practice is that it like lends itself to experimentation. So that road from like learning something and implementing it luckily is a little bit shorter when you don't like work within a whole institution. And so I would start to see like people change their diets and that really make an impact on their mental well-being or their resilience. Or we'd start to talk about like something like HRV training. And that was something that I was learning and I bring into uh, patient care or we learn like the skills of mindful self-compassion, I think were like instrumental, right? Like how do we speak to ourselves, especially if like I work mainly with women, right? That inner critical voice is so strong in so many of us. So we bring that in and I'd offer those meditations. And I think it was just that feedback that so many of the women in my practice would ask me questions like, I would like to know your like medical opinion of this, but also your heart opinion of this. Uh, that's so that beautiful. Like, yeah. Like incredible feedback, because at the end of the day, that's where the calling is for me for that, like heart of medicine and the art of medicine, like for that to go together. And so that to me is like feedback that it's landing, that they're like this big old toolbox is really beneficial to them and they're taking advantage of it. Totally. I mean, I wrote down mindful self-compassion when you Mm -hmm. were speaking, because I think it's such a beautiful, powerful term. And I, I would love to know how do you practice mindful self-compassion yourself? Yeah. So that I want to give full credit that that term belongs to Kristen Neff, who is the chief researcher in terms of mindful self-compassion and coined that term. Um, But for me, I mean, if we go back to like me pre-college and I describe that like very intense driven type A, the inner voice in there was like a perfectionist that was like, you are only worthy if you perfect yourself more. And 
for me, mindful self-compassion has always been, how do I meet that voice, give her space, sort of wrap my arms around her and let her know that like, you're enough, period. Not because you got straight A's, not because you were on a hundred teams and did this and had so many activities and were busy. And so it's been like this ongoing retraining of catching that voice and like, being like, I know you're here. So many other people feel this way and it's, it's okay. Like, it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not know. Um, that I think it's going to be a lifelong practice. (laughs) I mean, by no stretch of the imagination, have I gotten it figured out, but I think that deep dive into that type of coursework and understanding and seeing how it showed up in me. And it was so like a driver of what was going on. Um, has forced me to look at it and start to talk to it in a different way. I think that's really beautiful and so helpful to hear um, for people who aren't, you know, facilitating um, Mm -hmm. a private practice and who aren't working with clients that they can see that you're practicing as well. Now, I know you've mentioned um, that you primarily do work with women Mm -hmm. and then there was the shift into looking at burnout and the workplace. When did that happen? And when did you decide to, to really shift your focus? Cause I think it's such an important focus and I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah. So I think that came about probably a couple years ago, right before the pandemic. Now the pandemic marks so much like before (laughs) and after, right? So before, um, with my co-founder, we had had this conversation. He had had a startup And it had dissolved. And at that time, I think I was deep in the gut brain connection, like, and he had a gut condition and I was deep in this gut brain space. We thought like, this might be something that we could bring to the digital world or technology and develop around. So we started brainstorming and eventually that morphed into thinking about mood, right? Like the gut brain connection is cool, but if you add more context to it, it's like, how does that information help us? give a wider set of tools to dealing with depression and anxiety, for example. And so once COVID came around, we put it on the shelf. Um, and then someone approached us and said, we're interested in investing in mental health. Would you like to pitch? Um, and so I think we, we were trying to figure out, do we go like condition specific around something like depression or anxiety Or do we focus on the result of that like growth process, right? Like, do we think of it more in a positive light of building resilience? And so I think we wanted to be a little bit more general, right? Like this, this could be foundational to resilience building and also help in X, Y, Z conditions. Um, And so then that just took me deeper down this like workplace and burnout Um, and not surprisingly learning that women are more at risk of burnout. And that's exactly what I see in my practice, right? Like it starts to piece together the things of like, oh, clinically I'm seeing this. And then we look at burnout in the workplace because it's a workplace phenomenon and women are more at risk for burnout. Um, so that's eventually sort of woven together into what peace of mind is today. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, I can just, from what you said, there is a 
definitive line of before and after COVID and Mm -hmm. the immense change in the workplace for all of us and in particular women. Um, And I know that around the world, um, the last time I checked during, during the span of these past two years, um, 52 million women have left the workforce. And um, I myself had a child during COVID and Mm -hmm. I experienced and continue to experience the balance of work and childcare and trying to have personal interests and grow things yeah. for myself. And, um, you know, I think during this period of time, I have heard nonstop about the challenges of balancing a life at home and a life at work, mm-hmm. um, in particular, how challenging it is for women to do that. Um, when you started focusing on this process mm-hmm. and on this particular um, uh, subject matter, yeah, what? How did you approach this? I mean, I think there's just so much that can be addressed. Um, what? How are you approaching this problem? Yeah. So. I think in two ways, and there's probably a third one there. And so I will just caveat everything that I think there are pieces around this conversation that are still living questions for me. Um, And I think probably the jumping off point in many ways is just knowing that we can talk about it, right? That we might not have the answers, but I think if we're able to ask ourselves really good questions that's going to lead us into the solutions at those like deep root causes of burnout. So that's sort of like a big philosophical framework for me is, is I've always felt right. Like it's not about um, like the right supplement or like a really nice journal and productivity list that it really called us to ask questions about how do we want to spend our time? What are our values? What does success look like? What is enough, right? That there's like these big questions that I think really underlie the deeper conversations around burnout. All that being said, when we start to like build out a company and a methodology and a road forward to like live into these questions, we're thinking about it from two angles. So we're thinking about those cornerstone lifestyle things, which in our mind are nutrition and food and fueling, sleep, movement, and mindset. So those create that foundational piece that is really going to be like the ground that catches up, catches up, catches us. Yes, that's the right, that's the right <laughs> word. You got it. In my head. <laughs> yeah, the thing that like catches us Um, and helps keep that foundation proof against burnout, right? It's like the basics. And then hopefully, right, as we build more resilient brains at individuals, that helps us ask those questions within an institution, or if you're a team leader, of how do I change the policies and systems that are in place so that I can continue to support resilience in the people that I work with or that I lead? Because we know that like individually addressing burnout is only one part of the solution, that it's also opening up the conversation within an institution, like what are your policies? What's the workload like? What is flexibility like? What is fairness and reward look like? All of those are really important parts of the conversation as well. 
our starting point as a young company is looking at that individual piece, knowing, and I sort of think of this as like a guiding principle, right? Is like, if you have a well-functioning brain and you feel grounded in yourself, and then you show up to conversations that starts to have a ripple effect, right? That starts to allow for more creativity and problem solving rather than being at a deficit and totally burned out and being like, I just need to leave. I just need to leave my job and go hide myself in a cave for a little bit and then I'll come back. 100%. And I think what you're also talking about is boundaries and having that, um, the, the toolbox, like you've already mm-hmm. mentioned to establish boundaries and to affirm them. Um, yeah. but I'm also, you know, I'm curious, how would you define, I mean, I feel like we all know, I, I, maybe we all don't know. A lot of people know what burnout feels like. Yeah. How would you define burnout? And I assume that there are different levels mm-hmm. of burnout as well. Yeah. Yeah. So burnout, I think we all have like a felt sense of what it's like, but to get really specific around it, it's understood as a workplace issue. Um, So that isn't to say that like, there's also a burnout definition for parents so that it like includes everyone who's engaging in labor. Right. But it's like a workplace phenomenon and it has three characteristics. The first one is fatigue or exhaustion. There's this like physical level to burnout where you start to feel really tired and exhausted. And that hallmark is fatigue. Then the second bullet is depersonalization. So you start to feel more cynical, you might start to feel resentful or angry with your employer, your fellow colleagues or people that you might lead. And then third is that there is this like loss of efficacy where we think the work we do doesn't matter or it's not good enough. And we start to really doubt ourselves and our abilities. So those are the three like cardinal hallmark aspects to burnout. And that being said, everybody experiences that in a slightly different way. So fatigue for someone might look like sleeping all the time. For someone else, it might look like insomnia. It might look like digestive issues. That emotional piece might look like apathy and disconnection. For other people, it might look like aggression, anger, right? Like one thing gets missed and they're exploding or the person who's quietly simmering. And then that loss of efficacy or disconnection from purpose, again, can look like a lot of different things. It can look like feeling like I, nothing I can do, nothing I do matters or is good enough. Um, a real disconnection from like, my work doesn't matter. What this company is doing doesn't matter. It can have a lot of iterations, but there's that like physical, emotional, and spiritual aspect to burnout. Um, and there's all stages. So you can have like the inklings of burnout be sort of in it or on the like crispy side of burnout where you really need a recovery um, before you can start to like invest in the pieces that might prevent it. Super amazing. Thank you so much for, yeah. for defining and explaining all of that, because I've recently read that burnout can be traumatic mm-hmm. and is classified as, you know, when there's, I think the crispy burnout that you talked about yeah. um, is, is, um, is really processing trauma at work. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in the work that you do? Yeah. And I think that's such an important piece to bring into the conversation because another way into understanding burnout is like through what I would call like a maladaptive stress response, right? When the stress is recurrent, 
um, it doesn't let up or it's traumatically acute, those are the things that can set us up for that like really extreme burnout. Um, there's probably a differentiation there between what constitutes like a true PTSD, but that like overtaxation of our nervous system where we feel like we can't meet the demands and then it just goes into panic mode and that fight or flight, very adrenaline reaction, I think in our lived experience is deeply traumatic, right? And there are traumas that happen at work and being able to have a conversation and recognition about that is absolutely part of the solution, right? If someone feels like they've been gaslit and they're not being listened to and um, there's been traumatic events at work, that is absolutely going to contribute contribute to burnout as well. Yeah. I would also imagine that one's home life will contribute as well. I know you said that there's parenting burnout, but then there's also workplace burnout. Um, but you know, if someone's home life is unstable or if they're feeling burnt out at home, I imagine that would also flow into how they react in the workplace or how they approach their work. As yeah, well. absolutely. And I think in so many ways, that's where COVID really opened up in that gray zone is that work is going to influence home and our home life is going to influence work. And an analogy that I often use when we think about burnout that is in the, lit in the medical literature is this idea of a bank account, right? Of withdrawals and deposits. And when we go into a negative energy balance, that's when we start to experience burnout. So if you think about a stressful home life or stressful relationships, those are negative energy withdrawals. So if you come, right, like if you wanted to be at a hundred, but what's going on at home is withdrawing 30, 40, $50, and then you show up at work sort of at half capacity, of course, that's going to have an effect, right? That's going to start to play into that conversation. So I think we're realizing we don't live in silos, right? We're so interconnected and complex that we can't really separate the two. Yeah. I think there's also, you know, the, these deep root causes that you have been touching on. We don't have um, paid family leave in this country. We don't have any family leave in this country. Um, mm -hmm. And women are expected to get back to work and be productive individuals shortly after an incredible change in their lives. I know yeah. I felt fortunate to have um, a paid leave plan at my workplace, um, mm -hmm. but even then it didn't feel like enough. And I felt like I, I was so fortunate to have a flexible schedule mm -hmm. um, because my supervisor has children and understands. Um, but, you know, I think also just the nine to five work week, the way that we set up our work week, the way that we, and I talk about this a lot on the show, white supremacy culture and those traits that seep into so much of our culture here mm -hmm. um, in the in the States are really huge and major issues. And I know you said that you're um, a small company addressing these individuals to create larger change. Um, but what would you want to see change in workplaces to ensure people aren't burning out? <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is a huge question. Um, and just as you were talking, I think the way that I see this in the filter is like there unfortunately and painfully are so many parts where of our society where we're seeing our values 
challenged and we're seeing the our ability to dehumanize people in so many levels, right? That there isn't, that there's a, there's a capital gain that trumps valuing humans. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I can't answer the workplace question without thinking of it in that really big container of like, what would life look like if our values were around really, really investing in our humanity, right? Like, I think it, this is begging the question of like, what do we value? What do we think is enough? What are the costs we are willing to take? And not just thinking of that in terms of the money. Cause I think so much of our like American capitalist culture is about the dollar, right? Like that's the thing that measures and thinking like, do I want to invest in paid parental leave? Because I value that role in society. I value what that does for parents. I value what that does for children, for their development, even though if it comes at this cost in a dollar wise, right? Like this is asking us to really assess our values and how we invest in them. And so from a workplace perspective, I think taking human capital as the most important thing and recognizing people's humanity and how we really mirror that towards them in our policies from the very top to the bottom, that's the question that's being asked of us around burnout, right? It changes and it informs us of like, what does a work week look like? What does done look like? What does achievement look like? What does value and success and enoughness look like? Um, yeah, I feel like I maybe have more questions than answers, but I think we really have to do like a deep soul digging of what we care about because we're feeling the cost of it in our quality of life. Oh, I wish I could just drive around with what you just said, blasting on speaker <laughs> throughout all of the neighborhoods in America. Um, it's so true. I, I think that um, your questions, yeah, there are definitely more questions than answers, but such a great way to approach that larger question is what do we value? And I think, you know, getting down to the granular level of leadership in the workplace and asking all of those questions around valuing humanity and valuing the people who work for you. Um, do you have clients that manage people in the workplace and how, um, what resources have you been able to, to offer them in, preventing burnout in their, their sphere of influence. Yeah. yeah. I think it's about, you know, this is almost a cliche analogy, but it's so valuable of that, like putting on your own oxygen mask, right? That it's really hard. I mean, we know this from doctors when doctors are burnt out, they are less effective carers. That is true at a leadership level at, in any type of field. And so from our perspective, we're investing in team leaders so that they can fill their own resources so they can then turn around and be advocates for their institution to do that for everybody, right? Like it's so much the, um, the advocate, right? Who's tired and burnt out themselves. We are less effective in that way. And so I think it's like leaders 
knowing one leaders are also more at risk for burnout and they bear that like emotional brunt between managing their employees and the expectations of a company. So that emotional exhaustion piece is really significant, but it's very much like taking care of yourself and setting that example and taking on that burden of what it looks like. Cause it feels so uncomfortable in a culture that's like be on all the time. Don't take breaks. You can sleep when you die, right? Like hustle, hustle, hustle. It takes a lot of different types of leadership to be like, I'm going to respect my sleep. I'm going to eat three meals a day. I'm going to make time for movement. And I want to do that so that you can also do that. Cause I think those investments aren't superficial or only available to some, it should be part of the way that we function. 100%. And I've said this on the show before, but the biggest lesson I've learned in um, working for others and leading others is management sets the tone, leaders Mm -hmm. set the tone. So Mm -hmm. if you are not taking care of yourself, or if you're on all the time, the people who work for you are going to be thinking they need to be on all the time. So understanding that you're leaving a mark upon others, whether you intentionally know you are or not, I think is, is a huge lesson for leaders out there. Um, and I, I know we had you define burnout, but I'd love to talk about resilience. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. touched on that. Um, how do you define resilience in your work? Yeah. So I would define resilience as that feeling where you feel like you're resourced enough to meet the challenge and it feels I'm having a hard time placing what the word is because I want to say like invigorating but there's something that feels engaging about it right that you feel like you're resourced enough to meet it and that there's growth on the other side but you also have the self-awareness to know when you need to like recover and reset so that you can be resilient for the next event Um, and so I think it's like this, you feel like you have enough in the tank that you can meet the difficult moment and not be totally in the hole on the other side. Mm -hmm. That's what resilience feels like to me. And that like more in that definition, it's like, I can rise to the challenge. I can reset, I can rise to the challenge, but it's not creating trauma or burnout or a sense of being below my capacity. I love that so much. Um, where are you seeing resilience in your work and how does that make you feel mm-hmm. when you're seeing those moments of, of change and, and resilience with your clients? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I recently, I'd spoken to someone and I work with a lot of women who have trauma, um, histories and, we were talking through what was going on and she shared that something really difficult had happened. And she said, you know what, for maybe the first time in a long time, I felt like I could meet it. I had the tools, like it was this time where I could apply everything I had learned and developed, but it like, wasn't going to sink her. And as she described it, I just had this moment listening to her being like, this is the definition of resilience, right? This isn't that bad things aren't going to happen. There's going to be loss. There's going to be death and devastation. Those things are bound to happen in our human experience, but we feel like we can be present to them. We can gain the learning and 
whatever comes of being very present to what's going on instead of resisting it. And to just hear her describe this of like, yes, it was difficult. It didn't take away the difficulty of it, but it also didn't feel like at arm's length and it was lingering and really in her psyche and taking sort of over in another way. It was like, I met it. I met the challenge and I felt it and I felt the pain. And I also feel like I'm on the other side. And that to me is just... That just breaks my heart right open. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And um, as a recovering people pleaser, I feel <laughs> that, you know, very deeply. And I also think there's this element of fear when you get there of like, okay, we have to push through that. The fear of of understanding what you deserve and and meeting what you deserve and, and advocating for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think advocating for yourself can be freeing, but it can also be really scary. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard. It's really hard. And I think that like going back full circle to that self-compassion work is I know for me, for putting up those boundaries in my own life, it comes back to that foundation, right? Like I would not be able to do it if I didn't have that, that changing relationship with my inner life. Be like, this is scary. It's throwing up a lot of fears and meeting it and being like, but you're going to do it anyway. Cause you've got that gut feeling that this is what you need to be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cause it's not easy. And it like, there's all sorts of other voices, at least in my head, that's like, they're going to think you're not good enough. Like, who are you to put this boundary? Like are you lazy? Right. There's a lot of chatter that one has to work through in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that I've been reflecting upon lately and definitely um, I've thought of as we've been chatting is the need for a team, you know, not just doing this thing called life alone Mm -hmm. and having more support. Um, And I think that there are still a lot of people out there that wouldn't turn to a practitioner for support or wouldn't go to someone um, for support for their mental health. Um, And I'm curious how people can work with you if they're, if they want to get more support and because I I think it's vital and has been transformational for me personally. So how can people work with you if they need a team member, if they need more of, of that team Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, my clinical practice is open to people who live in California as well as Oregon. Um, And my, my contact information there is via my website, which is Antonella Aguilera N as in natural D as in doctor.com. And so that's for that, like one-on-one, you want someone who is well-versed in integrative mental health or whole body mental health. You need a practitioner from a workplace perspective, I'd say that's like where peace of mind really, really thrives. And I think just as you were saying, like something that's been really important to us is to put people in groups so that we realize that we're not alone, right? It's, we cannot heal trauma or burnout by ourselves. Part of it is that disconnection of feeling disconnected from people and emotionally like, right? Like healing happens in connection and reconnecting those pieces. So at peace of mind, we have these small groups that we have a very specific way that we run them so that they feel safe and people are able to share. You're also not going in feeling like you need to be fixed, 
right? Because that can sometimes not feel great when you go into a group and so-and-so is like, well, I think you need to do A, B, or C, right? We just need to have our own experience and not be witnessed by other people. And so that types of support at the workplace would happen through peace of mind and the website there is peaceofmind.us. Oh, beautiful. I cannot believe we were basically at our time that flew by. (laughs) Um, I would love to continue to chat with you again on the show. And um, I, I just really appreciate the work that you're doing and everything that you're putting out into this world to support others. And um, it's been so wonderful to learn about how you yourself grow and how you approach the growth of others. So thank you for taking the time to chat about what you do and, and the importance of mental health and, and finding that resilience. I think it's such an important topic, especially now when we're just dealing with things being thrown our way left and right in general and not just at work. So Antonella, just thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. We could have talked for hours. Seriously. No, seriously. (laughs) Um, And for those of you listening, thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. And please remember that your story matters and you matter. And I will see you on the next episode. Thanks everyone. The Amplify Her podcast is part of the Amplify Her Media Network. You can check out more shows on the Amplify Her Media Network over on Instagram at Amplify Her Media. See you next time.